French creator of the modern Olympic Games. Pierre de Coubertin in many ways represents and sets into place a lot of the social, political, cultural ideals of the Olympics as he's in many ways trying to bring the games back at the end of the 19th century. He's quoted as saying, you promote happy relations between peoples, bringing them together to quote, learn self-respect and thus the diversity of national qualities becomes the source of a generous and friendly rivalry, end quote. His idea behind the Olympics, while in many ways, um, as is pointed out, is aligned with a lot of the stuff that we're reading in the introduction um, of Boykoff's book, as well as the Redeker piece. Cooperton sees sport as a religion. In fact, he's quoted as saying, sport to me was a religion. He thinks about the various ways that creating these friendly rivalries in many ways um, works to both instill this ideal, he says, of potentially having world peace, as well as preparing countries and their people for warfare. Um, And in many ways, it's like, well, if peace doesn't work, you're ready for war. And so this contradictory understanding of what the Olympics games, the Olympic games represent and could Um, is something that I think we'll discuss a lot throughout this course. One of the important keywords for this particular chapter is Olympism. We'll see that phrase a lot. And Olympism is, um, quote, a state of mind that derives from a twofold doctrine, that of effort and that of eurythmy. Um, So if you um, haven't been watched any kind of eurythmic um, movement, um, it's really thinking about... um, movement is therapy, art, um, conveying a message. So in many ways, Olympism is the approach to the Olympics that thinks about, um, it's about giving your all, leaving it all on the floor, um, as well as using the body for a larger message, for a larger um, meaning. Cooperton sees this sacred enclosure of sport and what he sees as the Olympic Games potential. Um, And he says to celebrate the Olympic Games is to appeal to history. And in many ways, I think once we get to next week and think about what it means for the Olympics to be postponed in light of the coronavirus pandemic, I think in many ways it tells us a lot about history. During World War II, um, when the Olympics were canceled, it tells a lot about where the world was at the time in shambles, right? And so thinking about that is not only to appeal to history, you know, the Cooperton's thinking about it in terms of to think about the Greek history of the Olympics and what that means to connect um, our current situation, right, in terms of modernity at that point, um, to this more ancient understanding of the body, of place, of reward, um, he says, is to appeal to history. And so I want to think about how there's a dual appeal to both the history of the original Olympic Games in Greece, right? Um, but also where we are now, right? How we invoke history even now in 2020 to previous games, to precedent in terms of canceling the games, for example, all of this. The Olympic Games in many ways tell us where we are in terms of our societal values, our views, um, and I think that that's really shown here in this first chapter. 
Dukubertin's vision of the Olympics, right, both as a key to world peace, preparation for war, and supposedly a space for everyone, even as it excluded a lot of folks, primarily women, right, if we think about um, his views on women participating in sport, the unseemly spectacle, he writes, of women. Women, he believes, are there to crown victors, to have babies, to clap. That's about it. In terms of what countries can represent um, the Olympic Games, he sees sport as this um, civilizing mechanism. He writes, it might help Africa, quote unquote, calm down. So early on, we see the racialized and gender dynamics of de Coubertin's vision. It is a, an event for the elite. It's an event for those in the West that are commemorating this history. And it is most certainly not for women. Amateurism then emerges as a key point of contention in the early 20th century as the Olympic Games are set to um, take hold as this global mega event held regularly every four years. And part of that is that other folks at the time were like, we're fine if you keep all the people of color out. We're cool if it's just a Western-centric event. We're even fine if women are a part of this. But what we're not cool with is excluding out all of these various class dynamics, right? This idea that manual laborers were not eligible to compete in the Olympics became de Coubertin's primary issue. The other discriminatory practices were okay, but the idea that it was only going to be an event for the elite, many felt was a problem. So early on, de Coubertin wanted Olympism to also inscribe sport as being for upper-class, able-bodied Western elite men. And so in that opening into amateurism, which will continue to be an issue, we'll talk about this a lot more during our week on the corporate Olympics, right? Who is an amateur? Are you an amateur if you have another job that involves sport? Are you an amateur if you're paid to play? Um, and these things also, as you know, will spill over into our larger understandings about amateurism in terms of something like the NCAA, for example, because the NCAA and the IOC define amateurism very differently today. But back in 1896, when the first Olympics were held, um, they weren't necessarily an instant success. The first one held in 1896 in Greece, in many ways tried to connect that current moment with the the OG Olympics, right, in Greece before. The Greeks were very, very enthusiastic about this event and said, okay, we'll hold the next one too. In fact, all the Olympics should be here. To which Pierre de Coubertin said, absolutely not. Rather, the Olympics became a sideshow at the World's Fairs that were held every four years. In 1900, because of their attachment to the World's Fair, um, de Coubertin wasn't in charge per se, and women were allowed to compete despite his protest. 1900 also allowed us to see exactly how racist eugenics practices were incorporated into the Olympics with what was called Anthropology Days, which placed racial and ethnic groups against one another to see who was the best quote-unquote natural athlete. Much of the dialogue was about folks being described as savages and thinking about the various ways that there's this assumed at the time athletic inferiority of a variety of groups of people. And so the idea that groups of people were brought from all over the world to compete, um, many of them 
told different things than, than were actually what was going to happen, right? So this idea of what you're told you're going to be doing, you get there and you realize it's a very racist display of pseudoscience. There were definitely folks that walked away. There were folks that didn't understand what was going on because there weren't translators. There were all these very big issues in terms of both um, a very non-scientific practice rooted in racism very heavily, as well as the various forms um, of, of ways that this is challenged, right? So anytime any race um, didn't confirm ideas about a group of people, um, the scientists would try to find a way to um, rewrite what was happening in order to make it justify their claims to um, racial superiority or inferiority for a particular group. This is one way that, you know, boycotts pointing out the Olympics kind of reinforce these hegemonic norms or resist them. Right. So reinforcing through anthropology days, which are really designed to reinforce racial hierarchies. And then the resistance that we see in the 1906 Olympics um, with the Irish athletes is a really important moment, especially for Peter O'Connor, who is just such a heroic figure in so many ways, right? So Peter O'Connor, um, who is representing Ireland, is of course shocked, dismayed to realize that there is not a National Olympic Committee um, that is representing Ireland. And so they are um, pushed under the British flag, which if you know anything about that um, political history, this is a massive, massive issue. So when he wins the silver medal, his first medal, he's standing on the podium only to see um, the Union Jack flag, to see Great Britain's flag go up. He instead runs to the pole, climbs up the pole, and replaces the flag. He would do this again, um, winning another medal he, without going all the way up, right? But he would, in many ways, say that I refuse to have my medal lumped in to the British uh, medal count because I don't, they don't represent me, right? I represent Ireland. This is my opportunity. And so this is seen in the opening ceremony. So that, that Olympics um, is the first, the first time we get an opening ceremony. And one of the things that's really interesting about, again, this Olympics that's being held in London, the way it's already politically charged in terms of Ireland and Great Britain, um, the way that the Irish athletes, you know, make a space between themselves and the British athletes and have their own kind of shamrock laden um, Irish outfits that they reveal when they're walking across um, for the opening ceremony is important. And then also thinking about the ways that the political nature of the Olympics do really important things in terms of establishing the boundaries of sport. So one of the really cool examples that Boykoff po points out is establishing the distance of the marathon, the 26.2 miles, isn't established until the beginning of the 20th century where the distance is made because um, the queen and co decide that they want it to pass through um, near the palace. And so the actual markings and the distancing based on where they want the marathon to start and end actually gives us the 26.2 miles that we acknowledge today as a standard marathon distance. Another moment in terms of thinking about um, a former colony of Britain, the United States, um, is also disrespected in London because the U.S. flag is not is not flying. Um, and so the idea of American athletes in the early 20th century being um, in many ways disrespected by Great Britain and not acknowledged as its own nation state is really fascinating to think about um, what the relationship between a host city or a host nation is to these individual competing nations.
one of the other things I thought was really interesting about Boykoff's analysis and kind of this really amazing kind of archival um, layout that he provides is the resistance um, for suffrage, the way that women's voting rights are very much on display during this Olympics in London as these women are using the high visibility of sport and the Olympics to push the cause forward for women to be able to vote. In the same way that the U.S. and Ireland are, you know, bound up in terms of thinking about their own relationship and formation of the nation state to Great Britain. Um, there's also the way that, you know, Finland, for example, didn't want to be represented under Russia's flag. There's a way that, you know, Jim Thorpe's medals, Jim Thorpe as an indigenous athlete, his medals are taken away because he can, he's not considered amateur because he accepted some money, right? And then, so this is like 1912 at this point, you know, both like Avery Brundage, who um, is defeated by Jim Thorpe and then becomes the president of the IOC in many ways, isn't willing to let up on this idea of amateurism, especially as it relates to his nemesis. So we see early on kind of the petty of the IOC presidential position, right? The fact he can make this an individualized thing, as well as this idea moving past the Cooperton to Brundage and other leaders of the IOC, how quickly the sport um, and the Olympic Games themselves continue to change and shift in the larger global vision. Boykoff ends by thinking about the various ways that, quote, Cooperton's vision for the games abounded with contradictions, peace and goodwill bound up with sexism, racism, and class privilege. And this is something that kind of casts this idea of Olympism De Cooperton is really laying out his vision and in many ways is constantly morphed and changed under the various racialized, gendered um, dynamics of the IOC presidents that, which follow. So really, I want to think about as we go into next week, what it means for the Olympics and the IOC president um, to think about um, what the effect long term, short term um, globally is for hosting um, and holding the games as usual, right? Is it that we need a sense of normalcy back or is it that we could start global pandemic number two um, by bringing all these folks into one space? What do we potentially risk in terms of athletes not being able to train fully with each other, for example? Um, what does it mean that the Olympics is something that comes around every two years, you know? winter, summer, right? If you're summer Olympics, it's every four years. What would it mean to lose that chance to compete? These are a lot of the issues that were bound up um, in hosting this mega sporting event. And we'll talk about some of the issues, the decision-making process, and the reasons that folks gave for either definitely hosting um, and keeping the Olympics as is, or definitely canceling altogether. So I look forward to talking about that with you, um, and I'll talk to you about that next week.